Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The term horror is a wide umbrella. It encompasses a vast array of subgenres and approaches. Even its subgenres have subgenres. There are ghost stories, monster movies, psychological horrors, body horror, supernatural horror, folk horror, horror comedy, and on and on and on. When I was producing Masters of Horror, I thought it was important to cast a wide net in showcasing the many shades of the genre. We tried to offer up a varied platter of fright fests and showcase how many facets the genre can offer. It's a genre that can deliver splatterific frisson that is all about the sanguinary stuff, a romp that whistles you past the graveyard so that you can vanquish or at least alleviate your fears. The Friday the 13th movies are recreational horror that were the entry drug for many fans of the genre. Or it can be deep and psychologically resonant like Polanski's Repulsion or Rosemary's Baby. But there is something primal that attracts us to our fears. People talk about the fear of the unknown, and nothing is more unknown than the confrontation with our own mortality. But the fear of the known is equally important. Knowing what's out there and that it can get you can scare the shit out of you. There are many people, perhaps even most, who don't want to face their fears projected onto a screen, big or small. For them, horror is a gutter, one we've talked about often on this show. But for me, no stories have greater staying power in my head than those that prick the flesh of my fears. Call it latent masochism if you like, but if I can watch a film that chills me in a fresh new way that I haven't seen before, but in a way that I can identify with as so many fears are universal, then I'm a very happy audience. Our guest has a resume that embraces an almost schizophrenic array of genres and styles. Neil LeBute first gained notoriety as a playwright and then entered the world of cinema as a controversial writer-director of biting independent relationship dramas. But his latest film is a horror movie, House of Darkness. We'll speak with Neil about the many paths he's trod to get to that dark house right after this. Justin Long and Kate Bosworth star in the seductive thriller House of Darkness from acclaimed director Neil LeBute. Driving home to her secluded estate after meeting at a local bar, a player out to score thinks his beautiful, mysterious date will just be another casual hookup. While getting acquainted, their flirtation turns sexy and sinister. Hoping to get lucky, his luck may have just run out. Josh Corngut of Dread Central calls it a mysterious two-hander full of tension and clever misdirects. Its brilliance is in how it makes sure you keep second-guessing yourself. House of Darkness is now available everywhere you buy movies. So, Neil, it's hard for me to think of you as a student as B, at BYU, a famously Mormon university. Moving into the filthy talk for troubled uh, times was what really kind of brought attention to you. It's a very 
kind of rule-breaking play. So yeah. tell me about how you went from Mormonism into this. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you have to close your eyes and, and, and kind of like keep them shut to imagine me there. I, I did too. <laughs> um, I kept my eyes shut most of the time I was there. Um, but I was I was running around, you know, still brewing these ideas even, even there. Um, I didn't grow up a Mormon, so I went to school and I got a scholarship and I went and fascinating time in in my life. I mean, colleges, I think for everybody. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, you know, maybe having as many rules as they did and and strictures about this and that and how they felt about art gave, you know, birth to a lot of me pushing back on authority and that kind of thing. And so, it, you know, it was a, it was an interesting, as I say, interesting time. Um, and yeah, plays started to come out of that. Um, well, I started the formations of a play I wrote years ago called Bash started there. Filthy Talk started there in the company of men, I think was even brewing. Um, so I, I uh, you know, I used that time well, uh, found my footing as a, as a writer and, and, and even started in as a director as well on the stage, at least. Um, I didn't really follow a, a film school path. It was more of a, a theater school path. Um, so I didn't, I didn't make short films or, you know, music videos or graduate up that way. When I went to making a film, it was a, it was a kind of a complete jump into that. But, um, but the stories were kind of always brewing. So it was, uh, it was a good time for me to uh, start to feel what I could do on the page. Well, you had censorship issues at BYU. I, I, I it's, oh yeah. So definitely, you had definitely. plays of yours that shut down on opening night, that sort of thing. Yeah, I sort of ended up with the theater locked up, you know, and couldn't get in to, to put on our show. So um, I had a few of those situations in my in my time there. So um, it was um, it was eye opening in its own way, you know, but it was um, it was also the sort of thing where as a young person, you 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 relish that a bit as well. It feels like a badge of honor and, a, and you know, the show must go on. So you find a way to, to break into the theater or, or at least get someone's keys, you know, not quite as, <laughs> as, as, as passionate perhaps as, as actually breaking anything, but uh, uh, rattling some keys. So um, it, it definitely, yeah, there were moments where, where people were saying, let's, let's not see too much more of this work, but um, I, I continue to work. And in transgressive ways, particularly in the beginning, um, was it an intent to unsettle the audience? Always. I mean, I, I, still think, <laughs> I still think to this day, you know, I think that's part of the the pact you make with an audience. I mean, unsettle is a is a broad enough term that I can I can jump on that with you. Yeah, I think that you know you you certainly know that as well. That it's uh, it, it's it's great to take the audience has such a kind of like foot of safety of like we're in the dark we're all together and we're watching and judging and all that so so the more that you can kind of say hey we can we can spin this back on you and 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 uh and make you feel a little less at home um and we can we can kind of reach out and touch you especially on stage it uh you know breaking that that magic veil there and, and being working in small theaters and being able to look people right in the eye and and say uncomfortable things that was a a, a, a big moment for me when I realized that you could do that sort of thing successfully, that you could, you could take the audience, not just on a, a ride, hopefully a new ride, but one that had bumps that they didn't expect um, that were outside the usual 
pact that you make as a, a you know a, a paying audience or an, even an unpaying audience. I had a lot of those in my day as well. <laughs> so you know it was it was at least I could give them the the opportunity to to truly see and and hear something that maybe they hadn't seen before. Well, your your work is is very well known for the complications of relationships, the the man and woman relationships, uh, uh, the complexity of them, and in a lot of your movies and plays, the near impossibility of a compatible relationship to happen. Yeah, uh, and- sometimes that's yeah, that's the, the, it feels as if they they can't happen, but of course they can. Uh, they're just often less interesting than the ones that, that don't make it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that that theme carries through in House of Darkness as well. And it you've does. cast somebody like Justin Long and Kate Bosworth, incredibly likable actors doing yeah. un- unseemly things, which goes back to In the Company of Men. You've got Aaron Eckhart and, and, and your friends and neighbors, Ben Stiller, who's been on the show and is so great, giving one of his greatest performances in a very, very unseemly way, but that theme seems to to rear its head again in House of Darkness. It it does, yeah. And I've always I've always found that a very attractive combination to myself, at least the idea of taking people who physically attractive or had a um a you know sort of beyond a connection. In fact, a, a number of television actors who um at the height of their popularity. Uh, and because TV, as you know, has such a strange connection to an audience, it feels like it comes now kind of everything comes into your house. But it used to be that was the one that came home. And so you felt like you knew the people from Friends or yeah. Allie McBeal was, you know, she Killista was Allie McBeal. And so at, at the height of that, she did Bash for me. And and I worked with um, with um, uh, Matthew Fox right after we got done with Lost and, and with, um, you know, various people. Um, Eric McCormick coming off of Will and Grace, you know, at a time when, and then gave them a character that was, was much less savory than the ones that they had played on, on television. And that works in an interesting way with an audience that they're, they, they want to embrace that person. They've always, every time they see him in people magazine, they smile and go, Oh, I really love that guy. You know um, they don't know anything about that person, um, but they, they feel as if they do, they feel like they've been friends for a long time. And so to have them say things to you, Ben, you just mentioned Ben Stiller, Ben did a play with me. Um, he said some 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 terrible things, you know, to an audience and broke that again, the fourth wall. And so it seemed even stranger to them to like, why is he saying those things? Um, and uh, he did he did a great job with it, you know, because he's an actor and he's, you know, knows he can play a character and walk away. And that the safety of of working in the theater allows us to examine a lot of stuff. Um, so that's always been a, a tactic of mine that I love taking pretty people and having them say, not pretty things. <laughs> well, it also must be incredibly freeing and exciting and challenging to the actors to take those roles on. Well, they, they take them on, so I, I guess so. I hope so. I mean, I think it, you you know what it's like to 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 write direct stuff and 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 to the the, the if you have an antagonist, um, how fun those roles can be. How how much the villain is the one who you go, oh, remember so and so as. They were they were awful, but when they were so great as that person, I, I think you know it's the same way for for a, an actor that they get to to play these things that they might not uh, often be cast in, and and get this this um 
I guess it's not maybe fresh air, but a, but a breath of, of bad air, you know, that allows them to to feel freshly creative in a way that they're they're not. Uh, especially again on television, if they if they spend two thirds of their their creative life or creative year, you know, being the the rom com nice guy to be able to do something different, I think you know, as an actor, you feel like, oh, this is what I got in it for to play different people. Did you ever have any issues, and I'm not going to ask for names, where actors did not want to play unsavory parts? I've I've been in the situation where, yeah, someone backed away a little bit from what was there that they they initially signed on and then uh, got into it. And suddenly you could feel those wheels spinning where they were like beginning to calculate how this was going to play with an audience, even before there was an audience there. You know, um, you could you could see that they wanted to trim some of the darkness away so that perhaps the audience liked them a little more than what was on the page. And then I've had the opposite, you know, with, with someone like uh, Jason Patrick, who I worked oh. with in your friends and neighbors. Well, I did a, a play on stage with him and um, we did, we did a version. It was, the, it was when I directed bash uh, it was over in, in Dublin, Ireland. And Jason played one of the, one of the, the characters um, and these were these were monologue pieces, so you spoke directly to the audience. In the one that he did, uh, it was a direct address to what sounds like on the page one person. So what Jason did every night is he he had one particular seat in the theater that he looked directly at that person and <laughs> just zeroed in on them and wouldn't let them go. <laughs> and so uh, you had you could watch every reaction from from people who like were you know cringing and trying to like not meet his eyes for like you know the whole run of the, of the piece they would look down or look at their friends and be like you know what is he, why is he looking at me and others who felt this spiritual connection and you could see them lean forward and say i'm with you i'm doing this with you you know as, as hard as it's going to be but he didn't care he didn't whether you liked it or not you were and the person he was talking to and off he went um, and that's a tenacity that you don't necessarily see in actors. He's kind of above and beyond. He's, you know, one of the one of the best of his his generation. Well, there's so much bravery in a performance like that. And and I just watched your friends and neighbors again last night after having not seen it since the beginning. And he and Ben are both so fearless yeah. in being shits. Yeah, it was funny, you know, what at the uh, premiere of that film, I remember I was sitting behind Ben and I saw ben, ben basically sat in his seat and just slowly he began to disappear into his seat because <laughs> I think the only only watching it did the 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 realization of of how well he did that character he just you know I think he thought oh my god I you know I'm too good here uh, and he just kind of shrank into his seat and disappeared from from my view <laughs> as, as the movie went on well, let's talk about the difference of a, a reaction of an audience in a theater. And then when you made the transition to film, um, what that was like on the theater, you're playing to the proscenium or from the proscenium to the, uh, just the full house uh, in film. You choose your moments and how to amplify and de-amplify things. So what were the differences that you discovered moving from stage to screen? Well, I did realize that, of course, you know, you are still working with an audience and and whether you are there to see that you there are there are real people watching these things in, in real time, even though you can cover thousands of years if you if you wanted to in a film. Um, and physically, it's a it's a kind of 
moment to moment in the theater, you have to labor physically to make those changes. Um, whereas you can jump in a, in a film from place to place and take an audience, you know, on, on quite a trip, but they're still sitting there and, and collectively watching this thing. And so it's, it's been the same in a way for me being in the back of a theater, watching an audience view a film for the first time or, or watch a play. Um, but that, that connection between live people, um, on stage and, you know, in audiences is hard to beat for me. I, that's, that, that's certainly my favorite one, knowing that those people are all real and, and having this thing happen to them. Um, that's, that's an intriguing experience, but, um, but movie wise as well, you know, it's, 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 it, I, I guess being a big movie fan, um, I indulged in the, in the ride myself for a long time before I looked behind the curtain I, and, and then realized, gosh, how manipulative movie direction is, you know, even compared to the theater. I mean, I can sit in my seat in a, in a, in a Broadway house or an off-Broadway house and you can give me this frame and there's and people it however you do in the set and music, whatever trappings you have, but I can look anywhere I want to. Now that's roughly the same in film, but film is often bigger than life. I mean, the things are changing in our lifetime, obviously, you know, people are now are getting used to and prefer even the idea of I'm watching something on their phone, which is a, a scary option, right? The idea yeah. that, uh, that this thing that you've worked on is now in a, a little four by six box, but it used to be this, this larger than life experience. And yes, I can look anywhere I want in that, in that, on that movie screen, but if it's a close-up of a phone, you're pretty much looking at that close-up of a phone. There's not much else to look at. So, um, and and by editing, you suddenly say, "No, I want you to look at the phone. Now, I want you to look over here. Now, I want you to look into her eyes." You know, it's 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 like grabbing the back of someone's head and constantly twisting them this way and that to say, "This is the way I want you to view this experience, this story." Um, and so I found it to suddenly be, you know, much more manipulative than I had even imagined it as a viewer. Um, but then kind of understanding, oh, that's why I experience a movie the way I do and enjoy that ride so intensely. Because someone, you know, with some vision, hopefully, is is guiding me on that on that trip. And um, that that kind of opened things up for me in terms of. You know, do you want to do that, or do you want to? How much can you pull back from that? How much? How much? If you don't shoot something other than in one wide shot, you know, you create, again, that theatrical experience. You're not cutting between actors. You're letting two actors work in front of the, the audience. You know, if you don't use music to create mood, what is silence doing? What is the sound of the city doing? You know, so it's, um, you could be as manipulative as you wanted to be or not, but it can be an incredibly manipulative medium, uh, more so than I think than than theater or a lot of other ones. Yeah, hence the term director. You are uh, the tools of cinema are so vast yeah. and so propulsive. You can change the pace of a movie. You can change just by using different takes or pieces of takes of different actors' performances and the like can entirely change the emotional resonance of a scene. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it fascinating how like um how true it is, but how surprising it is the idea that that a single frame can make the difference in the timing of something that you're like, Oh, it's not funny. If you add one more frame. Yeah. And it's hilarious. A frame before that, you know, yeah. it's why, why that works is, is, is kind of alchemy, I guess. 
Yeah, the animator Chuck Jones used to talk about uh, how long it would take before the roadrunner or the coyote, Wiley Coyote, would disappear after he fell off a cliff before you see the little puff of smoke when he hits at the bottom. Right. Yeah. yeah. A few frames off. It's not funny. Yeah. Hey, I get it right. So were you drawn to horror in the early days? Is this uh, uh, an affection that that built up over the years? I mean, you, you've you written 16 episodes of Van Helsing. Uh, you've now got House of Darkness. There's not a lot of horror on your resume, but what there is is potent stuff. Was it something that you, you bought into early on or developed? Very, very early, yeah. My mom was a de- devotee of, uh, of horror. Oh. Um, you know, and, and horror, again, as you, as you spoke eloquently about the, the breadth of that, of that uh, genre, um, you know that could that could be um, play Misty for me or Friday the Thirteenth. Um, but she was drawn to the she liked the idea of being scared. You know, it was it was it was kind of thrilling. I think you know from her from her background, she she grew up with with older parents and uh, and and was not given a lot of freedom so i think just the idea of being able to go to the movies and and pick something that was you know forbidden fruit and so um but yeah she i think she definitely liked you know she likes gothic horror she was a, a big anglophile so she was drawn to I mean, she would watch hammer horror she would uh-huh. you know she, she liked dark shadows she used to keep me home from school <laughs> so that I could watch Dark Shadows with her, and then write a note and say that the car was wouldn't start, or that I had scratchy <laughs> throat, or you know that's that's how you know under the radar my mom you know worked. Um, and you were really young then. Oh, oh God, yeah, I was, I was, I was a kid, but I was like you know I was enthralled with Dark Shadows too, and and uh, and and yet that was a daily thing. So how many excuses can you come up with? But <laughs> you know she several times a week was making a an excuse for me to uh, to watch Dark Shadows. Well, what were the ones that really uh, got under your skin when you were a kid? Well, Exorcist, because I saw it too early. I mean, I, I should qualify that. I used, I've said that before, and it's, it, is it ever? It's, it's always too early to see The Exorcist. <laughs> it's just the scariest thing around, you know. Um, that worked on on so many different levels, you know, for me. Um, just an incredibly well-made movie and kind of primal and and there's just a whole whole lot of things about that that um religion is involved it, it was a, a scary ride for me but i did see it i did see it young um well you were like 10 or 11 when it came yeah out. exactly well see again mom you know she but you know <laughs> she also you know different than this era didn't have the materials you know she would see oh ellen burston max von Sydow. Oh, this uh, thinking is and hadn't read the novel, so this is an elevated sort of oh, but it's going to be scary. There's the devil involved, and <laughs> you know, and off you go, and uh, and you get more than you bargained for. Um, but uh, I mean, it was probably equally sensational to see Deliverance. That felt as much like a horror movie to me as as it, and certainly to my father as well. He was very surprised with the movie <laughs> that he got. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, there was no talking on the way home. It was it was simply like, we'll pretend that didn't happen. That <laughs> I, that was that was my mistake, taking you to that movie. Um, but Jaws was absolutely a movie. I'm still destroyed by you know like the deep end of a swimming pool feels like there's the potential for a shark in there simply because I can't see what's in the in the water. Um, 
Spielberg absolutely trashed swimming for me for you know, 50 <laughs> years to this day. Um, so thanks for that. But, it, you know, what a great ride. That was yeah, uh, worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And you learned how much, you know, from and you read a little bit more and go, oh, they were having troubles with the shark and this and that. But what, you know, feels like in the end, the product that I watch as an audience member going, how crafty to not show me that thing for so long. You know, and 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 just and I, but I know what a shark looks like, and I just, you know, I just the anticipation of those things um, worked remarkably well, and and were vivid, and and also got me at the right age, and all those things. Well, was there ever a time early in your career where you did want to scare people? Well, you know, even in in like in the company of men, I've heard that people say, "Oh, that was kind of a horror movie," you know. Oh, without, it surely is. Yeah, you know, it, of of a different kind, you know, of of oh, of of what, because the funny thing about about some horror is we enjoy it because of the uh, the, the visceral experience we have that we're pretty sure we'll never have. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to go through this this serial killer chasing me through the through the night experience, but I'm going to live through it on this, uh, you know, this journey that I'm, I'm seeing in this film. And then there are other things where you go, oh, I could experience this at any time in my life. I could have this relationship with somebody. And so um, that's why a movie like The Stepfather suddenly becomes, you know, a, a very different, very vivid kind of experience than, than a, a movie, you know, about something that has... Uh, has 12 tentacles and comes from space. <laughs> yes. So um, it's, there's, there's all kinds of, of um, rides that we can take in, in this genre. And, and so I, I guess I was leaning into, yeah, something that felt a little more, not, I don't think I was thinking horror when I was doing it, but I, I certainly wanted it to have an impact and that, you know, to take your breath away. And I think the same way that a film, a person making a horror film wanted to have that experience happen to you, uh, once once you did, I mean the dam broke. Um, we're talking about folk horror. You did the remake of The Wicker Man, and let's talk about the philosophy of remakes. I mean, I did the Shining miniseries after you know Kubrick's beloved feature. King never liked it. And, yeah, I was going to uh, say I was going to say somewhat beloved. You know, now it feels like beloved. But, yes. Uh, but there were certainly detractors at the time. Oh, um, the critics in, at the time. Including the author, yeah. Yeah, um, annihilated it. But the whole philosophy, you know, in this case, we went back to the book and King himself wrote the screenplay. And so right. I wouldn't consider it a remake, though others would. So you've you've trod that ground now with a beloved film. Who originated the idea? Was it Nick Cage and his fandom for the movie? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, although I had been a fan myself and, and actually always thought it was, that was a movie that could be remade. I wasn't necessarily ripe to do it, but I thought, yeah, I, you know, only later do you find, oh, this is one of the, you know, the, the movies that, 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 especially if you speak to an English person, you know, they're like, this is one of the two or three best horror films ever made. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay. Uh, I remember watching it and thinking, yeah, it's not, it wasn't particularly well made. There's a lot of stuff I love about it. I love the ending and the story was great and, you know, a cast that I really enjoyed, but I didn't feel like it was so sacred as other things might have been. Um, and, but Nick, Nick definitely 
uh, was interested in doing it. And he wanted, you know, he, Joey Ramone had really loved it and uh, they were friends and he'd promised him he would, you know, he was going to take it on. And, and, and he dedicated uh, it to Joey, right? Yeah. 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 And so, um, you know, it, in the end, you uh, we ended up with an experience, I think, where there were just too many people having a say in in what was being made. And that's a that's a tricky with any film. It's a tricky boat to be on, you know, where you you, you find all of these caps. Suddenly everyone has a captain hat and you're like, wait a minute. How did this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that that can become difficult to, to get the because it really is like a. You know, you're cooking something there is there there can be too many versions of the recipe or just too many ingredients or whatever it is. And, and suddenly you're not sure if it's meant to be satire or if it's going to be horror or um, some mix of the two and, uh, and, and things can tip, you know, in, in, in the wrong direction quickly. So it was, um, you learn as much on, on something like that as, as the ones that you think you got completely right. Definitely. And I had a good time work. Uh, Nick was, fantastic and and funny and and uh just had amazing ideas and uh some of them impossible to tackle but yeah. you know and he would have them like middle of the day when you're halfway through shooting something um <laughs> but it was like yeah i mean thank god he comes to the table with that much energy and interest um and uh and so yeah in the end you you do something that that people you know um like they don't like uh but you you know you you're just chugging away day after day trying to make something that uh is is different and interesting and, and you were able it. to be you were able to writer and director on it as well but yeah. uh where did all the other input come from the other producers nick um yeah other uh, you know the, the 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 other other producers the, the the company putting up the money um you know, Nick had a voice in there. So there was, there was a number of people who, who just, you know, were able to, you know, work and, and say, Oh, I think this would be better. Or what if we shot some of this? And, you know, it, it, um, there's only so much time in a day to shoot, you know, what was, right. what was agreed upon in the first place. And so um, it, it's, uh, it can quickly become more than you can, you can ever, ever hope to shoot or, um, or just broaden the, 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 you know, what you set out to do in a way that, that blunts the edge of it so much that um, it, it won't have the impact that you, you hoped it, it might have. So what was what was the concept of remaking the film? What was your raison d'etre in doing it? Uh, well, we, 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 you know, we loved what originally had been had been done and we thought, um, but let's we want to we want to take this idea and, and Americanize you know, some version of that. What would that be? You know, what would that world look like to us? Um, and uh, we, uh, I, I, you know, and, and have many times in my in my work done um, a sort of male female, you know, battle the sexes. Uh, there, there was some ingredients of that, you know. So we 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 really wanted to, to create. Uh, it used the original as a springboard to try some some brand new version of it. I was really lucky in that the original Warner Brothers had it and they test marketed it in San Diego where I was living and going to college when and I thought it was just a regular release of a new Christopher Lee horror movie. So I saw it in a theater, uh, one of two theaters that 
opened in when Warner's tested it and loved it and all. And then later on my Z channel show, Christopher Lee was on. And of course he was uh, the most important film of all time. You know, the Wicker Man. Um, <laughs> but it, Christopher Lee, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But, um, but the idea of bringing it to a modern audience, it was not a successful film. An independent guy brought it out and put it in a handful of theaters around the country. And, That's when I ultimately saw it late in the late like seventies. Yeah, yeah, and and it was really when Cinefantastique put a cover story on calling it the Citizen Kane of horror that it really got this out, outsized reputation. It deserves it, but it was also something that, as you said, could easily have been remade for an American audience. Yeah. But anyway, back into the world of horror. Um, what about the first time you saw it with an audience? First time I saw it, I saw that film. Yeah, I saw it with a really small audience in in Spokane, Washington. So it wasn't much about the experience with an audience. It was just again seeing it. I had seen the poster. I, I was intrigued. I, I saw the trailer. I was intrigued. Oh, I uh, mean your film. Watching your film with the audience watching my film your version of wicker man oh i see um uh well that was a bit of, that was a bit of a ride you know that was a um that th there was a equal amounts of derision and pleasure you know from people and so that's always a, a strange experience that people are watching and, and having such different reactions so um that's that's just been I, i've had fairly split audiences on many of the things that I've done. So yeah, by that, and, and certainly in the theater as well. So by that time, it, it sort of felt like, oh, this is what happens, you know, with my stuff that, you know, people either go one way or the other very strongly. Um, so it wasn't like the first time that had ever happened to me. Uh, but it's always, you know, uh, fascinating to see how an audience goes for the ride. Well, it's interesting, too, after uh, your friends and neighbors, you you made a studio film, Nurse Betty. Yeah. And what was the difference? This I don't believe you wrote Nurse Betty, did you? No, first thing I, I hadn't written. Um, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time rewriting it, um, but I, the, it was a first time script for for two guys. And I, and I wanted them to get the credit for for writing it. Um and then it went and won best screenplay at Cannes, so that was a you know a funny experience, like picking up that award for them when when I had spent as much time rewriting it as as anything <laughs> else. But going, yeah. yeah, I'm sure they'll be very pleased with this. Um, but uh, it was a you know more money, more pressure, uh, some bigger names. Um, you know what that experience is like. I yeah. mean, each time out, it feels like there's not enough money, not enough time. Um, but in 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 exponential ways, you know what I did mean. Did you feel? Did you feel that you had to compromise the Neil Labute style and approach? Because well, I knew I knew that it wasn't Neil just my own my own thing. It wasn't you know? So it wasn't you know. I, I wasn't trying to make it as much you know to look as much like the films that I had made already as trying to get the balance of the mood because it was a tricky, strange like it's a comedy, but it's also you know, slightly surreal, but it's also got real violence in it. Um, it was a strange mix, uh, a very weird little hybrid mutt um, that felt like you had to get it just right to keep the ball in the air the whole time. 
And I think we did pretty well with with doing that. But it was oh, it's a, a terrific movie. Yeah, it was a strange one to 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 work on that way because it was um and it was a road picture, so you're all over the place. You you know you're going from Rome to uh, Lancaster, you know, and, and and everywhere in between, you know, and supposed to be in Kansas, and um, it was. Uh, so it felt felt very piecemeal, and you're meeting a lot of people along the way, characters, and just keeping the balance of that big fun cast. And are they all getting you know in the same movie? Half the time is the is the battle. Is like do you you know is that tone going to really work? Um, and I would say it did, but um, it's a it, that's a that's a real struggle sometimes when you have a movie that's as schizophrenic as that one is. Well, you, your your work as a filmmaker for hire still uh, carries your personal stamp as as any good filmmaker would. But I, I mentioned earlier that your resume is borderline schizophrenic. Yeah. <laughs> in that, um, I mean, Death at a Funeral is a flat out comedy. Uh, yeah. Lakeview Terrace is a thriller. Um, so tell me about your different approaches and and. How you do approach a movie? Do you storyboard? Do you break down? Do you shot list? Um, do you huddle with your keys? Um, I've, you know, I've done a bit of all those things, and you you find that different people work well differently, um, and you can hopefully get a feel for what it is that that a person does best. Some editors like you right there, looking over their shoulder, and some just wish you were somewhere else, you know. <laughs> and and they'll send you, you know, uh, something to look at, or or have you back in the room the next day. So it's it's always a little different. Um, I'm probably not by nature someone who you know uh, makes little storyboards for everything, but I've certainly storyboarded things before where you feel like, oh my gosh, this is going to take multiple cameras and, um, we had better plan this out in a way that's, that's not just, oh yeah, I have an idea. Let's go feel it out. Uh, I mean, my favorite situation is to, is to do just that, is to have a notion of how a thing should work, how a scene should work and be there and be ready for that. Um, but then sort of the best idea wins. If you have an actor who comes in and they're like, wow, that, just, that doesn't feel quite right. I was thinking maybe we should do this. And you listen to that and you think, yeah, that's a great idea, actually. So why not be open to that? And But, you know, you can't just turn things on their ear either. So you you do have to come in with a vision and, and be prepared. And so I've got a way driving to work each day that, that says, I, I see the scene this way and let me explain it to everybody and, and see what, you know, what comes of that. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. I've had times where I've, I've needed to storyboard uh, or do little models or, you know, things that, that uh, create a earlier in the process, a sense for, for people like this is how we're going to tackle it. And, and usually it's some wise person, you know, beyond me, some, some good UPM who's going, Hey, we should really talk about that. Uh, that uh, street scene, you know, and and then starting to gather their forces to go. If we're going to pull this off, let's let's make sure we've got everything we need, not just on the day. Have you go? Hey, wouldn't it be cool to, you know, wouldn't it be cool? Often doesn't work out. <laughs> well, what about rehearsal? As someone who came from the theater, where rehearsal is crucial, Steven Spielberg does not rehearse his cast until he's on the set and they're shooting. And he just lets it move and it, it works great for him. What about you with your theater? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sorry it didn't work out for him. That's terrible. <laughs> what a shame. Yeah. Um, you, well, you know, I would say you wouldn't know it, you know, because yeah. when, when, at his best, 
which is often the case. You know, it's funny when you say at his best, which means which movie, because there's <laughs> yeah. so many. But you watch like the the last third of of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, the camera moves as well as anything I think I've ever seen, you know, telling multiple stories in multiple speeds. It's incredible. You know, people talk about the, the D-Day section of that movie, but the end of that movie, the way he moves people and and, and equipment and cameras around is, is shockingly good. Um, but yet for me, uh, even more so than that kind of thing, when you're talking about actors, I would love to rehearse as much as possible because that's certainly where I've come from, but I'm also most comfortable, like, let's do this and make sure that it, it works. Let's, you know, not in the time where the pressure is, where the sun is going down and cars are honking and, and we don't have much time, you know, that all that, the, 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 the what can be frustrating side of, of making movies out in the real world. Um, I'm used to that security of a, of a, rehearsal room where it's quiet and you can work for eight hours a day and and you go from beginning to end when you shoot a movie in the in the crazy economically based talk about schizophrenic way you know of doing things um you know we we do everything so that it's it's cheaper and faster not conducive to a, a poor actor who's trying to figure their through line of a character um it is, it's imperative to have some time for them just to be able to go, okay, let me just follow how this works from here to here to here. How do I, how do I get there emotionally? Um, so as much rehearsal as I can get is what I would love, but it doesn't always happen. Yeah. In recent days, it seems it's harder and harder. There'll be times when a secondary character will, the first time I meet them is on the set. Yeah. Isn't that unreal where it's like, God, I hope you, you know, you do that thing that I saw on that tape or yeah. in the room, you know, yeah. um, I've had that happen where it isn't the case. You know, you cast them as the old woman. And as soon as they got a job, they went and had their hair done and look nothing. And a facelift. Like, like, Wait a minute. That's, you were, you were, do you remember what the title of that character was? Old woman. Not, uh, not looking your best at your 20th reunion, but uh, you know, Funny, funny stuff happens all the time. <laughs> so what about the move into television? You created your own show, Billy and Billy. Mm. Uh, you've written a lot for television. Uh, tell me how that feels different, even though people consume their feature films uh, as much as they consume their television at home. Uh, the making of it is certainly different and different parameters. It's swifter, certainly. Um, but coming from the world where, you know, you know, independent film, um, those people who have gone from there to television are probably more um, adequately prepared to deal with television and the, and the, and the way in which it gets shot than someone who's moved over from the studio world, they would be, you know, overtaken in a, in a day by the, the rapidity with which things often take place. So um, I didn't feel, I think the first thing I directed on, on television uh, was uh, an episode of, um, hell on wheels and um, I did it because I, I I was a fan of the show loved westerns growing up and uh, thought oh my gosh there's no almost no chance to do westerns these days so it'd be great to to try this and um, and while it felt like it was moving quickly I never felt like oh I can't work at this speed because I have I've made whole features in in 10 days you know <laughs> so an, an episode of this in seven days feels luxurious you know um it didn't end up feeling very luxurious but it felt like i could at least do it 
you know. Um, but when you begin to start creating things, then what's interesting, I guess, for me, having having done again a lot of theater or or made um, films from my own scripts, those things felt like distinct pieces with a beginning, middle, and end, and you move on to a whole new world, you know, with the next one. Um, so the idea of saying, oh, can you take these characters and tell 50 stories about them or 20 stories, that was a, a unique challenge to like keep those people interesting, come up with ways in which to move them forward through a through a storyline. Um, it wasn't so much like I'm now a, a showrunner because showrunner seemed suspiciously like being a director, you know, yeah. afterwards like, Hey, what do you think about showrunner? I'm like, it's a lot like directing, you know, it's just like yeah. directing like 10 features instead of one. So if that's not that different, but, but, but the telling of, of that many stories about individual characters became an interesting challenge, which I, which I liked. That was like a good challenge, even if I fail. So right. The challenge is, is sometimes the, the whole thing that was worth doing. Well, let's move into vampires. We're getting closer to House of Darkness. But um, uh, it, Van Helsing, your experience with that, that was a purely horror show yeah. um, that you wrote uh, 15 or 16 episodes, I believe. Yeah, maybe but even you, more than that. Even more. But you didn't direct any, did you? No, we shot in Canada. So I was not able to. I was because uh, we had myself as a showrunner on it. Um, we used almost, I think, I mean, we, we kind of had to use exclusively Canadian directors or, you know, ones who were going back and forth over the border. Um, so that was part of the deal going into it was that I was not going to direct anything. Um, but as I said, it worked out to be because you end up being the person who goes in and, you know, takes a director's work and sits down with it and can re-edit and do the, you know, you're creating a a, a continuous artistic hole for the thing, hopefully. Um, it did feel like being the director on it. So so that worked out without having to have direct any of the episodes. Um, and I would see them come back every so often really muddy or dirty and think, yeah, this is fun not to actually get up at five and <laughs> not to and, be in the trenches. Yeah, in the trenches this time around because it was in Vancouver, and so the trenches were often full of water. So it was nice to <laughs> uh, nice to show up at seven thirty rather than than four thirty. Yeah, uh, that's where we did Masters of Horror as well. I thought so. You know, the very first um, very first writers' room we had, which was something that was a new experience as well, a writers' room, uh, which was fascinating, but often I felt like slower than me just sitting down and writing the whole thing myself. Yes. You know, the, the talking and talking. But yeah, there were there were posters for Masters of Horror all uh, over the walls of where we where we worked. Um, ironically, because we didn't have a writer's room. It was basically I was the showrunner, but uh all of the the scripts were freelance. Oh, I got it. Okay. Yeah. Well it was, you know, these were like obviously the finished posters for for the show itself. So yeah. I remember like, I felt like, oh, we've got good energy. We're in a room where there's horror has been made, you know. <laughs> um, but um, it was, uh, that that experience came through Hell on Wheels. Um, the people who were who were producing that came to me one day and said, hey, what do you, what do you think about vampires, you know? And I, you know, they, I don't even think they knew that I had, I had written a, a version of Dracula for the stage. And I was like, uh -huh. yeah, you know, I, I've always kind of dug vampires. And um, they said, well, we've got this idea for, Van Helsing, but it's kind of present day apocalyptic, and we're taking the Van Helsing idea, but using it as a woman. And I, I thought, you know, that's and she. Oh wait, what are you saying? She 
her bite actually cures Vampiro. So, okay, that's a version I haven't seen before. You know, it's such a pliable myth. I mean, speaking of that and, and House of Darkness as well, the, you know, the, the, the Dracula myth itself has proven itself to be, you know, so sturdy that it can be stretched in an incredible number of ways and, and still be standing. Um, and it certainly was the case with Van Helsing. You know, we, because it's called Van Helsing, we tried to be true to a lot of, of the lore without making it about, you know, a, a remake of, of that book itself. Well, what was the experience like? First of all, people don't realize a director on a TV series is basically he's a, a guest and he does his work and he does his cut. Then he goes home and then the showrunner comes in and has final cut. Yeah. Uh, more so than the director. You had done that on Hell on Wheels. What was that experience like for you? Strange experience on, on Hell on Wheels. Because, yeah, there was that time where you go, this is where I would naturally be finishing this thing. And you do a cut and you hand it over. And then they make some changes. They might talk to you. They might not. But then you watch it on television. And you're like, oh, wait, why did you? You know, I've carefully, I carefully composed going from that face to that landscape. You know, I've seen some Sergio Leone films. And that's how you're supposed to do it. You know, you go from a close up to a wide shot. I don't know if anybody else was watching, but I was, and I know how this is done, you know, and they're like, no, this thing has to be exactly 43 minutes and 23 seconds. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so your wide shot, you know, was sent to the toilet and you, oh, frustrating. So some parts exhilarating and some parts frustrating. Um, but I felt like, yeah, I got back on my feet by being the showrunner and then <laughs> having to be able to say, well, I know one thing we're keeping is that wide shot. We'll, we'll cut out something else. So you were on the other side of the table then. Absolutely on the other side of the table and, and was like, yeah, this is this is the side of the table I think I prefer to be on um, in, in, in this process. Because, yeah, in the end, whether it's it's right in quotes or not, you know, you have a vision of how this should work. And 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 to get two thirds of the way there and then hand it over is a is a strange way to work. Yeah. Well, let's talk about House of Darkness. I mean, the, the title alone implies House of Dark Shadows to me when I first heard it. And it has a gothic sense to it. Um, but it starts out like a Neil LeBute uh, relationship drama. That, that was the idea. See so him take a, what, what feels like, here's two people, you know, I hope they met cute. You know, it wasn't really a date uh, from what we, what we gather, but, but a guy going to give a woman a lift home with the best intentions again, probably in, in heavy air quotes, because um, <laughs> his intentions seem to change, the more his opportunities seem to open to him. And it was fun to, to play with those power dynamics that we often think of, you know, that, that a woman would be the one in peril. And, and we even had to cut some, some material along the way where, you know, Justin's character was was looking at this house and, you know, basically implying to her, this can't be yours, right? I mean, you 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 couldn't own this place. The, the dynamic of, you know, this must come from your father or from you've come from money or something. You didn't buy this house because you're just a woman here, you know, and 30 some years old. And so it's that's not possible. Right. Um, and I sort of hated to lose that stuff, but there's some sense of it still there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you get this sense of, you know, uh, the the entitlement that a guy often has and and the implied power dynamic that's there and and then watch that slowly kind of turn over on its head but within the confines of a, a of a genre picture you know heading further and further down the line toward 
outright horror. So that was a, a fun mix to put together. And it's also in one location, basically. It could easily be a play. I can imagine this on the stage. You, you um, know, yeah, there's a there's a section where we we spent I spent at least an uncomfortable day in a mine shaft. Um, yeah. But other than that, yeah, and, and that was actually a change from the script because um, the house didn't accommodate what was on the page. We therefore had to look for another location. I said, well, look around for interesting stuff. And they found this mine shaft and we spent our last shooting day in there. Um, so without that, yeah, you this, you know, it could be on the stage. I've done that kind of thing before where I wrote a script. Uh, I did a film a few years ago called Some Velvet Morning that had um, Stanley Tucci and Alice Eve in it took place in one house, two actors, you know, that easily could have been on stage, but it happened to end up being a film first. Um, this coincided with, with COVID in a way where I had this script and I was like, people are seem to be looking for movies that are small budgets, you know, small number of people, relatively few locations because the COVID restrictions were such that it made it difficult to, to work. And so it's, it ended up being a perfect time to make a movie of that size and scale. Um, but sure, you can turn around and have a very grand Gwinnall, you know, stage play uh, of the thing if you wanted to. And where was it shot? I mean, the, the location itself, the house is astounding. Beautiful, beautiful rural Arkansas. Wow. Um, and, uh, and why you ask? Well, cause you know, these things we call tax breaks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I hadn't shot in Arkansas. I saw this house and I thought, you know, this gives you a nice Gothic feel without being too obvious, you know, not feeling like you shot it in England. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, let's, let's embrace that and, and, and make it work for our more modern sensibilities. And yet you go back to characters named Lucy and Mina. You do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think uh, the genre fans out there will. Yeah, I've always liked those weird sisters from from Dracula. So, yeah, I thought, why not? Yeah. So uh, was it an entirely spec project? Did you just come up, decided you wanted to tell this? Yeah, just wrote, the, just wrote the script and then, you know, was looking for a home for it, which is is still hard to believe this many years later in a career. You know, I, I still find myself doing that as a writer that I, you know, you you go, hey, I have an idea and no one knows about it. No one cares. Uh, you write it and then you hope somebody does care and they want to they want to make it. It's my favorite way of doing it. I hate going out and pitching something. I love just sitting down, writing a movie. It's a facility that we have. And yeah. I not do it. It takes nothing but time. Not everybody has that facility. So I understand the, the other. Yeah. yeah, but I do. I agree with you. I've found times where I felt like, you know, the agony of pitching this thing is so much greater than I could have just sat down and wrote the whole thing for you and, and handed over this script and then just tell me if you like it or not. But me looking into your dead eyes, <laughs> trying to believe that you you might actually like this is is more painful than you can imagine. And how easy was it for you to set it up once you spec'd it out? Not too bad, but it's always a, a scrap. You know, of, it's like starting uh, over every time, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. And you always wish you just ran into that one happy investor who goes, oh, man, I just I love your stuff. Just, yeah, go do your thing. And I can't wait to see it. You know, it, that so rarely happens. Um, but it's uh, there There weren't too many people involved. So it was it, it came together relatively easily. 
Is there a genre you have not attacked that you really want to? Um, well, I guess a film, you know, a film Western is certainly still out there glittering somewhere. Um, I, I, you know, will that ever happen? I don't know. Um, uh, space is, is a place that I, I go probably less frequently as a viewer and, and certainly as a creator than, than other places. Um, you know, boy, would I love to have, you know, executed, I just, when I think of movies, you know, gosh, would I love to have done, you know, wouldn't you love to have made all the president's men or, you know, the parallax view, or I'm going to just list off Bakula films here in a minute, but (laughs) you know, there's clues. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, wouldn't you love to have made, yeah. Wouldn't you love to have just been Alan Bakula for, you know, the (laughs) seventies. But, um, there's a lot of a lot of folks like that, you know, a lot of films like that. I mean, I just I just this morning I, I was watching uh Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean because uh, it's Jacqueline Bissett Day on TCM. Ah uh, which is just like the soundtrack in the house. TCM is in the background all the time. <laughs> um but uh you know I'm watching that going, you know, Paul Newman. You're just like, yeah, and I won't get to make a Paul Newman movie, but boy, what a pleasure it must have been to like work with a a pro like that, you know, so there are also just people you hope that you, you get to work with as well. So, yeah. but I like working. So um, I'm going to hopefully just keep telling stories. <laughs> That's great. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the slab here on postmortem. It's really great to meet you. I've been a fan for as long as you've been making movies. And... Same for me. And it's great to talk with someone who obviously likes and loves what they do and movies as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thank you. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.